as the torciadores, aka the cigar rollers, quietly rolled their cigars, and the despaliadoras, aka the strippers, stripped the stems from the tobacco leaves. They were entertained, informed, inspired, and enlightened by literature and the daily news. So began the tradition of El Lector, the reader. This is the El Lector podcast, stories and cigars from the exiled South. We hope you'll enjoy it. talk about what we're smoking and what we're drinking all right welcome to the elector podcast uh wow we haven't recorded in quite a while right it's been some time yeah it's been a while we're here at uh but we're kicking it off the right way right which uh means that we are, we are doing an on location recording something that we've only done once before which was at the uh the former cigar seller Remember that one? Yes. With, with Jack, with our friend Jack Yeah, Tarania. our live show. Yeah, our live show, which live. Live. And, yeah, in quotations. And uh, also posted later on posthumously. Well, we recorded on, on site in Havana <laughs> as well. Oh, that's right. Of course. So we also did our recording in Havana. Yes, also, sir. Also, Marcos, your house is a location. Yeah, I know. Be, that's true. Yeah, so do we so have a name for it? But was it live? <laughs> it was Memorex. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, this time we're in we're in probably one of the coolest places. I would probably equal it to where we were in Havana. Oh, I think this yeah. is cooler. The, yeah. the the idea of being in Havana was was very cool and um, something you know we probably won't get to do again. Yeah. But I think this is truly kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity. So, where are we, Victor? Right now. We are, what's the address? 907. 907 Whitehead. Whitehead Street, Key West, Florida, 33040. The so former home of Ernest Hemingway. We are, seriously, we're sitting next to the pool. We are on Papa's porch. We're on Papa's porch, <laughs> looking at his pool. We want to give thanks to the people here at the Ernest Hemingway house, right? We thank our... Yeah. Or my employers, the Morawskis, Jackie Sands, our general manager, and Dave Gonzalez, our oh, yeah, coordinator yeah. of, of, of events and media. And we have with us, that, that was the voice of Chris Parsons. He is the head tour guide here, correct? Yes, sir. Yes. So we want to thank you, Chris, for letting us do this and for also sitting down with us to you know, participate in the, in the recording. Because we need, we need you. Because we're novices. We're he well, some of us are Hemingway novices, right? Not all of us are. We have a few other guys here who we brought along with us. We have with us here today Andrew, our friend Andrew, who's uh, chiming in. He's one of our Hemingway experts. Uh, a resident expert. Yeah. Resident expert, yes, yes. And also Philip, who's all we're not, we sometimes use last names, sometimes we don't. Philip's our resident raconteur. Yes. <laughs> so, hey, Philip, well can you say hello there? Uh, it's good to be with you guys tonight. All right, and, great. And uh, the Don Lambert is around taking photographs. Yeah, Don came along as our photographer. <laughs> <laughs> He'll probably sit down and join us soon. He's got a camera to do it. That's okay with us. <laughs> so 
we're, we're, we came down here just to kind of set up, give some background to what this was all about. We, we really, we, we just had this idea um, of looking at Hemingway because we started meeting as a group of friends years ago uh, to, it, with our, our group Eagle and Child, the Eagle and Child Men's Forum. And we kind of dedicate our time there to uh, reading really thoughtful writers and looking at, sub, at, at what they say specifically about just kind of masculinity, um, some existential stuff, you know, things that, things that, the questions that guys usually ask. There's a group of guys, we meet over cigars and stuff. And, and from those meetings, we, we started reading a lot of Hemingway. We started reading some of his short stories. And Philip was, mm. was the guy who kind of like brought a lot of the, the Hemingway stuff to us. Uh, from books, from collections like Men Without Women, correct? That was one that really impacted right. us. And, you know, you start looking at the mythology of Ernest Hemingway, and, and Key West is such a central place for that mythology. So what we did is we decided to come down as a, as a group of friends, and we came down for a couple of days. We got in touch with the fine folks here at the Hemingway House, and they were um, gracious enough to let us do this tonight. But we've also been here soaking in, kind of like for the last day and a half, a lot of the place, which you've is really important. You've been so on your own as a group of guys experiencing Key West. Yes, yes sir. Yeah. You've already figured it out. We figured it out. <laughs> That's right. <clears throat> and the most poignant and obvious examples of this are I happen to be smoking on an unbelievably beautiful cigar. Yes, sir. Facilitated by this man here. <laughs> yeah. If a cigar could taste like butter, <laughs> I have found it. I agree. I and agree. Actually, you bring up a good point. That's a, a typical, one of the first things we do on the podcast. We go around and tell what we're smoking. Yes. So, uh, Philip, why don't you introduce us to the cigars you, you brought? Well, the, the, we're, we're actually the two of us together here are smoking a, and, and Marcus, you got to help me pronunciation because my Spanish is horrible, but we're smoking a Monte Cristo Anejero. Oh, let me read it. <laughs> okay, it says, uh, it's a Monte Cristo Habana Añejado. Yeah, that's it. And uh, it's real. <laughs> it's an aged cigar. Yeah. It's a very aged cigar. It is absolutely extraordinary uh, from Cuba. No 90 joke. miles away. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, excellent. <laughs> and in the other hand, <laughs> um, fortunately for just a what? tad, with, as the rest of us, a Yippie Kaye genuine whiskey, Park City, Utah. Yeah, the, we're drinking stuff here that Hemingway would have approved of, correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he basically. was a connoisseur, mostly of wine, by the way. Whoa. See, there's another myth. I didn't know that. There, yeah. That's a perfect thing to kind of get started yeah um ernest hemingway's life revolved around the places he lived the places he wanted to be and what he experienced from it which is kind of what we all want to do right yeah yeah we kind of thrive on wanting to do that and for a lot of the time we don't get opportunity to do so um this man was a product of the time where it was even more difficult to do these things but he found a way to through quite genuine hard work, determination, call it gumption, call it whatever it was, correspondence for sure, talking, chatting, rapping with people, letters back and forth, but he found inspiration in places and we're sitting in one of them right now and if you can bottle it, do it. Yeah, exactly. Do <laughs> it. We're drinking it in for wine, sure. Wine, wine, he, you know, the time spent in Paris, around France and Italy and Spain and 
This home had a cellar full of truly one of the finest per privately owned wine so collections had, the world had ever seen. From all over the world, too, right? All yeah. over. Yeah. His palate was more refined than anybody else. Granted, he was self-medicating forever from a young man. Yeah. The result of that, sure, you slip into other things. Of course, he drank rum down here. It was readily available. Yeah. Bourbon, scotches, whiskey. But he had a genuine palate. Mm. He knew. And if he didn't like it, he probably still might have drank it. Yeah. <laughs> he, wrote, he wrote drinking well. He most certainly did because he was experienced in doing so. And he was also <laughs> very talented on making sure that we understand and understood as readers in a very simple way. So speak, continuing to speak of finer things, wait, I'm smoking a, a uh, this is a cigar that Philip got me today here in, in Key West. It's uh, the Rodriguez family. Uh, we're going to be talking with them tomorrow Daniel, morning. With, with the son, Daniel. Daniel Rodriguez. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to be meet, meeting with him tomorrow to talk to him about his cigars. So I'm smoking this one. It's a, it's, it looks like a Maduro, for sure. And um, it's a uh, series, yep, series something Maduro. I'll get it right tomorrow. But it's, uh, it was their, their highest rated 91 points. Yeah, and it's very good. It's burning really nicely. And now I'm what, also what are you drinking there, Marcos. And what I'm drinking is when we went to Cuba, Mark and I went to Cuba with uh, Dan and Jeff back in uh, February. We, I, I found the rum that is named after and in, made in, uh, distilled in honor of Ernest Hemingway in Cuba. It's called Ron Vigia Gran Añejo. And it's a, it's a nice little rum. It's good. not a big deal, but I, I thought it would be fitting. I bought it back then because I was hoping for this day to be able to open it up here uh, with you guys and share it with you today. So that's Excellent. what I'm enjoying. What about you, Mark? Okay, I've got a cigar that was brought to me by Andrew, who's joining us today. Yeah, do you want to know what you're smoking? I, would you tell me about what I'm smoking? <laughs> So Mark, trust me, uh, kind of empirically, you're smoking a Jericho Hill, which is uh, looks like their Toro size. This is by the Crowned Heads line. I'm also smoking a Crowned Head cigar. This is their La Imperiosa, and that I, one's really good. I have been kind of preaching the good word of Crowned Heads mm. over the past uh, couple months. Something now. you've been interested uh, in, you found these, interest in it. No, these cigars always impress me. Like across the board. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've had probably four or five of their blends now, and they're all worth trying. They're notable. They have something going on. That's a big statement, man. Uh, yeah, awesome. Man. Andrew was kind enough to share one with me today, and I really enjoyed it. And I would agree. This Jericho Hill is yeah. so I'm not, I'm not being paid to say this, but you should go pick up some Crown Heads. Hey, and, and, cool, man. Andrew, hopefully you will be paid. You are a cigar adventurer. I just find something I like, and I keep smoking, smoking. You go out and you find these other things. It's awesome. I love it. I love the fact that we're all <laughs> sitting here. It's like it, we're from different backgrounds, and we're we're friends, and it's pretty much a lot of it has to do with these sticks. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It, 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 it creates an us atmosphere. Yes, yeah, definitely. And we will be pungently reeking of it. <laughs> oh yeah. Afterwards, and our wives will be complaining about well, it. Well, hey, yeah. <laughs> we get to be doing this right now. Exactly. So, what about Victor, you, Victor? What do you got? Well, I am smoking La Antigüedad, my father cigars. Oh, that's oh. good. Yeah. Yeah. Look at the, I believe look at the label on cigar that cigar. cigar. This is a beautiful label. There, that is, there is like a Renaissance painting. On the <laughs> that is of the serious. It's beautiful, isn't it? It is, yeah. it is beautiful. This is yeah. a work of art. One of the prettiest rings I've seen. Don, Don has got. Don decided to join us. Some Captain Block over here. What do you, what do you got going on? You got to speak into a mic, man. The man with the pipe. 
That's right. I'm going to be smoking some Captain Black, just pipe tobacco. As I, uh, <laughs> sorry for because all you Hemingway would have wanted it. That yes, way. someone has to represent, <laughs> as they say. Yeah. All right, so let's start out with that. Okay, so we've been talking oh, about this, myth. debating this. We're talking about myth, and we're we're going to talk about place here today. So the, those are the kind of two things we want to touch on. But let's start with the whole cigar thing. So we've. Arturo Fuente cigars, they came out with the Hemingway line of cigars, and they came out with this, these little uh, short stories, right? And they're tapered on the end so that you can light it quick. And what they said was, well, you see, what happened was had Hemingway... Papa. Papa had walked into a cigar factory in Cuba, and, and he, he taught them how to wrap it correctly because when he, was, when he would go I'm out sorry, to see... Excuse wait, wait, wait. my exploding light. Let, okay, no, no, let me is, finish my this accent. This is terrific. Uh, <laughs> this is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. But he would, he would wrap them. They, they, he taught them how to wrap it tight at the end so, with, so that you could light it. It was a smaller area to light it, so you could light it quicker when the wind of the ocean is blowing as, he, as I'm on the Pilar. And, theref- and therefore, the Hemingway short story was born. So the question is... That's beautiful! Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Boy, did that work well or what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the question is, though, did this guy even smoke cigars? Did he enjoy them? We don't know. Can you would answer that question, Would he smoke cigars? Absolutely. He would have yeah. smoked cigarettes, and, you know, a couple of his wives were smokers, and would he have smoked cigars? Sure. Why not? Did he? But did he enjoy them thoroughly like we do, or he just kind of did it casually on occasion when he was among friends, probably? So let's get into fact and myth. That's right. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if anybody other than a person who would have been standing around him, hanging out with him often, would be able to answer that question. Would he have smoked cigars? 100%. Because it was a social thing. Right. And he was a social man. That's what he did in order to keep himself around the conversation to feel accepted and to be accepted and gain information as he's quietly taking notes on a little pad of paper with mm-hmm. a short About sharp pencil, saying, right? yep, yep. pencil what they're saying developing stories characters absolutely 100% but here's the myth part of it. so how does cigar aficionado put out their 100 top cigar smokers of all time here we go, because I'm going I'm to urge on this one now. And say he's the 85th most important person <laughs> out of the 100. 85th? Right? 85th. Was, was that was that? Winston Churchill okay. was number one. Okay? Right, right. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, so, well, so, sure. Yeah, so so myth. So he's like the 85th most important person ever. And he's been on Cigar Affection out of the cover twice. Right. Twice. And we can't find a single picture of him smoking a cigar. Well, so that's why I said what I said and why I said it. Um, How about this? In terms of a worldwide cultural idea, we're associating Ernest Hemingway with Key West and Cuba. Yes. Right. There's a direct correlation. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing coming out of Cuba was tobacco and yeah. cigars. Yeah. Key West had tobacco factories that were That's right. making absolute fortunes. There are a couple absolutely gorgeous buildings here on this tiny little island that were one time highly successful cigar factories. Right. Exporting throughout the United States. Everywhere. Yeah, they were coming from here, from Tampa. Yeah. And it's just one of those places. Yeah. It was a direct access to the products required to create them and then get them out of town. Right. 
So in that list of the top 100, yeah. what they oh, write it's, about it him, started at 100. And it didn't the, start the at top anywhere. Started at oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I'll give you number one. You gave it already. Yeah. It was um, it, you said Winston, it. Winston. Winston Churchill. Right. Can anyone guess two or three? Humphrey Bogart. He's not in two or three. George oh, two or Burns, three. and I read the oh, list man, like that. That would be funny. George Burns is number four. Oh, four, okay. okay. Wow. So two is former U.S. President John F. Kennedy. Okay, sure, yeah. sure. The whole, yeah, that's, that's a gonna, Cuba tie. That's yes, a Cuba, yes, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, number three is a very, very clear Cuba tie. Fidel Castro. Oh, <laughs> oh please. <laughs> we, it's okay to talk about him. Che Guevara is on the list as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah whatever. So moving are down, those, here's were what those they wrote. one through four? Yeah, no, no. Guevara's not four. Yeah. cigars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what they write about. I'm switching to clothes. What they write about Hemingway. <laughs> Don't be that guy. Well, Hemingway was not an avid cigar buff, no less an authority than tobacconist Zeno Davidoff once right. declared him. A There's myth. smoker of Havana cigars. But see, but this is what we're talking about. So Zeno Davidoff was also building a brand. He was building an image at the time. Didn't he? It was post. Yeah, he Huge. actually did. Yeah. Right, he right. Oh didn't he? Come he on. Was, he, was, uh, he was one of the few who Number had a connection world, with post-revolutionary Cuba. He bought. He had land there. He was producing cigars. To, he he, fi- he finished well in the cigar business. But he was building building an image, and of course, he's going to say that about Hemingway. He's got to he's got to build it up. Build up the mystique about cigars. But that's kind of like what we're doing too, right? We we kind of try to do that on the podcast as well. The, but the whole mystique. Go, go ahead, Victor. I think that's part of the whole myth thing. Yeah. That that is um, like there was a, a saying that if you put together all the splinters of the true cross. Yeah. that Jesus Christ was crucified on, that you'd be able to build Noah's Ark. Yeah. So. <laughs> I love what you just said. What you, what, what you don't see me doing right now is shaking my head and kind of putting my hands to my shoulders. Yeah. Not in a, but yeah, man. So, so er, everyone has this opportunity. Because he was so mythic, everyone had the opportunity of assigning him something. Right. And it was true enough. You'd be like, sure. He probably, he probably did think that sandwich was great. Yeah. He probably did drink that. He probably did do this because he was so much larger than any one human being. Allow me to interject just yeah. a quick thing. Tell us a little bit more about, about Hemingway. Hemingway. Give us some background. myth. Right. Okay. This is a man that was a product born in 1899, who at the time, if you did not act like a man, even as a young boy, right. if you didn't act like that, you basically were not considered that. Mm. Okay. This man had some serious things going for him. Short list. He was huge for his time. He was handsome. He was extremely articulate. He was well-read. And he knew it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was the oddball, no matter what, given his parents were also interesting. Father as a successful pediatric physician, a child doctor, mother a highly eccentric but very talented musician. He was not either of those. But he ran with who he was, and we're talking from a boy, guys. Like nine years old, realizing these things already. He knew them. Ernest Hemingway's life revolved around being honest and forthright. Okay? But he also had and applied this mystique about himself and the world around him. He created who he was. Well, we, were, we were talking about this earlier that 
it seems in every picture you see of Hemingway, he is he knows there's a picture being taken. How confident does he look, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. Even the the last photograph we know about that man, and we've got hanging he got it hanging inside the house approximately two weeks before his death. He's in actuality holding the double-barreled shotgun that he used to wow. take his life, okay? Wow, yeah. But he looks confident. What I show people on tours here, if they're interested enough for to listen, and I can judge that based upon people, is that the picture is not poorly taken, but it shows a severe lack of deterioration in his physical health. Mm. There's discoloration everywhere from yeah. under his eyes to his, the, the cuticle lines of his fingernails. Is, is this the one where he's shirtless? No, he, no. no, he's wearing a shirt, but he's holding a gun in his arm. And, okay. and, but, but he knows that he's posing for a picture and people go, he's kind of smiling. Hmm. It's Hemingway. He knew what was going on. He understood the public eye. He understood the perception of people as they're looking at him. They wanted to hear what he was going to say. They wanted to see what he was going to do or he was who he was hanging out with. And But he recognized this early on. He created this. Yeah, there's such a sense of celebrity. He's like, in modern times, kind of a proto-Instagram star. Almost. Of course, he was Elvis times 100,000, yeah. friend. Yes. Around the world, you yes. know. There, there, were, there were hotels around the world that would reserve rooms for him, and if people were staying in them already, they'd say, you need to leave. We'll move to you another room because someone else is showing up. Yeah. What, what an... In yeah. The influence. Influence. Yeah, influence. And he understood it, and he understood how to use that. And it certainly benefited his, his life and his career. But to apply that to, so to, to a mass distribution of writing, that's something else. But he applied all of that into. You're that saying as well. he used it to. to, to, to his advantage? The myth. Absolutely. Advantage. Absolutely. In my opinion, absolutely. And I think a whole lot of people would agree because he understood that. It wasn't accidental. He, he, was, he was masterful at it. It right? might have started being accidental yeah. as a younger person, but to be able to realize that firsthand because you're living it and then being able to turn that into something, that's yeah. special. Well, I think that's part of being an artist is this, this hyper-awareness of detail, hyper-awareness of what's going on. Like because artist, you cultivate what you're seeing and you're, what you're learning. You're seeing, you're taking, you're keeping track of everything. Well said. And like an, an artist can, they don't have to be looking at a chair to paint a picture of a chair. They, they know what a chair looks like. And, and Hemingway was so aware of what people are like. And he's so aware of his own details, what he looks like. He was very self-aware. He's yeah. very self-aware. Yeah. So he's always, you know, he's producing art in one form and writing. But I think also in just building his myth, he was producing like a life project. Beautiful, beautifully said, creating yeah. persona. Yeah. Yes. He's creating a persona. Yeah. He also surrounded himself with people that would show that. Mm -hmm. Didn't yeah. you? Oh, and he and he would lend his voice to uh, even the the Spanish Civil War is a great example. Man. But he what if, a brave thing. If there was a cause to to be I had had, told him, are you nuts? <laughs> yeah. He felt like he was big enough that he did he, he didn't treat his celebrity as something that just for his own benefit, he, he used it to help others. So, Marcus, right there is, is really interesting thing. There was two things that, that I wanted to touch on that we had we had really wanted to talk about, and that was place. Yeah. And here we sit, and, and I just have to say, if I could give any description to what we're looking at, it, 
we're, we're looking at the house to the left. We're sitting, and I, and I really want you to talk about this, the cottage where he wrote is above us. We're looking at the pool. We can see the lighthouse. The sun is is, is beginning to, 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 to fade into the sky. It's waning to the west. Yeah, Chris, could you give us a sense of place, kind of the, um, the size house. of the lot, yeah. the, the location within the island? In our proximity yeah, to where the, the, the writing went on. We're really fortunate to be sitting on the largest single-family-owned private residence on Key West. We are one square acre of land. And I say this all the time during tours, and to you guys, but it's important to kind of give an idea of how big this place is. An acre of land on Key West is simply enormous to have one property on. Um, between 10 and 20 different units these days, housing and this kind of acreage. It, it, it would be like everyone has a postage stamp and Hemingway had a sheet of paper. A sheet, yeah, pretty much, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to have views at his time of a full Atlantic Ocean from the yeah. foot of his bed, he could see the lighthouse and the Florida Straits from the front of his house on the veranda or the front porch. We're looking at a lighthouse sitting directly across the street. What is that? It's not a football field. It's not, well, maybe, maybe about 100 yards. 100 meters, yeah, I think yeah. you could hit it with a football Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it was all right here. A product of his environment, yes. He found inspiration in this place and produced upon that, through his work, through his writing, short stories, novels, uh, far more so than any other portion of his life. Mm How much would you say he wrote while he was here? Well, I can tell you that he wrote 70% of his life's work here in nine years. Wow. Nine, nine years. And, and I mean, y- you think about it, okay? What, what are those years? Can, what are those years? We're talking 31 through 1940, okay? okay. This was like wild, wild west, guys. Yeah. You know, Duval Street was not bars, restaurants, and shopping. Um, can you give us some titles of some of the things he wrote here? Just a couple. Well... Was Pretty much shorts? everything with the yeah. exception of <laughs> The Sun Also Rises, mm-hmm. Fiesta, original title, European edition. Uh, so Sun Also Rises was done before, a few short stories. So we're talking everything until Old Man in the Sea. Mm. Yeah. You know, he obviously, uh, um, I mean, a farewell, of arms was, a farewell to Arms was completed here. Gosh, Farewell to Arms. What a beautiful novel. Um, to have and have not. Um, oh. The short, happy life of Francis yeah. McComber. You want to choose definitive Hemingway in a short story? Yeah. Oh, my yeah. goodness, and we, ladies we, and gentlemen. We would recommend, if you haven't read any Hemingway, read that one yeah, first. start with yeah. that short Read the story. short, happy it's life good. of Francis McComber. It'll give you a really good idea of how he wrote, how well he did, and in terms of relation to his life. Mm. I, I've, been, I've been waiting for a chance to say this, but I think... The, the spirit of Elector started with that short story. Mm, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you remember. I have a mm-hmm. very vivid memory. Really? Oh, yeah. Between you that's, guys? That's how yeah. we started this Really? Whole thing. Yeah. I have a wow. very vivid memory more than you even know. <laughs> of the table of men listening to Marcos read that story. Yeah. Uh, the first night we kind of spiritually started it'll yeah. get you th- this yep. this idea and yeah it was, it was early on for it sure was, yeah 
over like ten years. It was it was over ten, 10 years, years ago. ago yeah. It was years a ago, long yeah. time ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I I think that 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 goes to show not not just the the impact of the work of Hemingway, but also uh, it's this really really cool moment that we're at right now, where we've we've spent so much time talking and and meditating and sharing. The, the influence that Hemingway's work has, um, am- among tons of other things that we've talked about. Yeah. Um, but this this is a, a really nice kind of pin- pinnacle, um, and there's there's plenty more to come. But this is this is a great moment because we get to talk about and, and share in all of that uh, that work in in this place. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew, let me ask you a question. Since you brought up uh, the Francis McCombers story. What can you give like a sh- a brief description of it and what it what how do you relate that to the moment we are in now? Yeah, um, the the story is about a a couple on safari where the the man is hunting and his wife is kind of just uh, at his side while he searches out lions and buffalo and these amazing animals in Africa, and really it's about the the struggle to find oneself as a man to de- to define yourself by slaying the lion mm-hmm. and um and the the way the world reacts to that moment both other men and women and i i think for for us it was a, a fantastic way to kind of start this dialogue a long time ago because mm-hmm. that was what we were seeking to do we were seeking to have the conversations and the moments where we stare the the roaring lion in the face and actually have that conversation mm-hmm. um it, it's it's a really great story I, I it's not long i think everybody should should read it at some point it's one that again i'll and I'll, i think i said it it's definitive hemingway because he understood the relation of humanity as an individual. I know women in this world, women, that have read that and gone, what? I get that. Mm. I understand that. Mm. Because Mm. you're talking about just being us and living through our world and having to have challenges of understanding certain things or wanting to progress the next step. Am I really understanding that? Am I really um, go for it? Kind of no holds barred. He he took his wife Pauline on vacation. They went on safari, facilitated by Uncle Gus. I need an Uncle Gus. <laughs> yeah. We all we need all an need Uncle, Uncle Gus. Gus. We all need an Uncle he Gus. Got in the house. So. Tell us he, the story I'm, of Uncle Gus. I'm going to start a foundation called the Uncle Gus. Foundation. The Uncle <laughs> Gus Foundation. Um, as long as you don't mention the last name Pfeiffer, I'm sure Pig at Arkansas would be just fine with it. And the Pfeiffer family. This this property was purchased for Ernest Hemingway and his new wife Pauline Pfeiffer Hemingway as a wedding gift. No way. And every person's heart just kind of goes, oh. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the pots and pans, everyone. Yeah, day. for really. And that's fine. We love you, and you can come over and hang out, and that's fine, and we'll use that dishware. Um, a wedding gift. Gus Pfeiffer facilitated travel of Ernest Hemingway and his wife, Pauline. He truly understood that this would be an investment, if anything. If 
he knew that he knew that if Ernest Hemingway would continue experiencing that he would keep producing, creating, imagining, and doing what he's doing. Wow. Um, So he knew that. In the long term, Ernest Hemingway completely messed that up because he was who he was. But Uncle Gus Pfeiffer facilitated these travels to Africa. I mean, these are serious events. These are these are trips that ended up resulting in snows of Kilimanjaro, green hills of Africa, and these are also trips where that man ended up in two plane crashes in five days. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. that's a true thing, by the way. Yeah. yeah, that's a true thing, by the way. Two plane crashes in five days. He survived them both. Come on, that's adventure. <laughs> Who is this guy, right? <laughs> One of the things Victor and I were talking about a little bit earlier was. How Hemingway was the real life Bill Brasky. If you're not familiar, <laughs> there's a, a fantastic SNL sketch. Um, these you guys are Bill drinking. Bill Brasky, you're, dude, that's you're brilliant. Yeah. yeah, that's these brilliant. These guys are sitting at the bar talking, to, you know, raising a glass to Bill Brasky. And telling and, stories? Know, yeah. yeah, right, right, so right. Like, oh, Bill Brasky once went to a site <laughs> and had them build a bar and then he burned it down and, like, just, you know, he just said, over the top stories. Because uh, you always ought to leave a place the way you found it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then oh, they that already took that's right. That was it. That was right, 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 right. That's a Bill Brasky. But but Hemingway <laughs> seemed to uh certainly the the narrative has li- has made it seem that he lived the Bill Brasky life. And so I'm sure that there are is there are kernels of truth throughout that and and I don't doubt anything And that's you're saying, the whole thing about that. it. There are kernels of truth throughout that. The, there's something that and that's that's amazing that he had that kind of almost like a patron and Uncle Gus that let him go out and actually meet these people, go to these places. Because there's a quote from Hemingway, um, books should be about the people you know, that you love and hate, not about the people you study up about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Hemingway had that element of, of real in everything he did. Yeah. And that he could blur the line between real and myth. That's correct. Because you know he was there. you got to take his word for it. Yeah. Yeah, and he described it and in you a way that, that at some point, right? He, he, he wrote in a way that's like whatever he's saying is truth. It doesn't matter if it happened or not; yeah. it's truth. Yeah. I think uh, I think Hemingway succeeded in what a lot of the lost generation failed to do. I think yes. Thomas Wolfe uh, writes, "You can't go home again," and he he publishes a condemnation of a lot of the people he knows, and Hemingway never did that. Hemingway never condemns any of his, no. any of his, any people he knows or any of his characters. Well, he did a few he, times, but he didn't make, didn't make, he made sure that it wasn't released to the general public. Yeah, it, it was, it was done so in a way where you, you believe, you believe the truth in it. And it's, it's a, it's a telling of, a, not a true story, a story, a fictional story. But the, the truth of the characters rings true where you're, you're not pointing at people and saying you're a bad person. Yep. You're, uh, I, I, said. I think a part of that is in going to places and being a correspondent, having that journalism background, he really sought to understand what was happening, understand people. Yeah. And because of that, he, he deferred judgment necessarily. He, di- he didn't open and shut the case on things. 
he wrote about it in a way that it's him figuring out as well. And now you can figure it out because yeah. he figured it out. If I had the bravery to go and do that during wartime, during um, turmoil amongst communities in certain populations of certain areas, France, Germany, Rome, uh, any of that, I don't have, I don't have that. But he did that. You're right. Mm-hmm. So oh, I'd like man. to read a, a quote Admiration. from, from uh, a biography of Hemingway called Writer, Sailor, Soldier, Spy, Ernest Hemingway's Secret Adventures, 1935-61. to 61. So this is during World War II. So a couple brief moments here. In the eyes of Lanham and his soldiers, Hemingway's performance in the Hurtgen Forest was exemplary. First, he was good company, sharing his whiskey and talking about subjects that mattered to him and were entertaining. How his son Jack had joined the OSS and parachuted into occupied France how his undeserving wife, Martha, wanted a divorce, (laughs) what the mating habits of African lions were. Hemingway even demonstrated how a lion got what he wanted from a lioness. Mm. And though his job was to report on the fighting, he took the same risks as the men whose job was to fight. He went outside the wire with the attacking infantry, much farther forward than he had to go. Cool under pressure, willing to fight when he had to, he again displayed that sixth sense, what the Germans call the feeling in the tips of your fingers, that marked the best practitioners of the art of war. On December 4th, his last day in the forest, just as the members of the regiment who had survived the battle were being pulled back for a desperately needed rest, Hemingway's sixth sense saved his life and that of his friends. A thick ground fog had made it impossible to see more than a few feet ahead as he rode slowly down a muddy road with a fellow correspondent named William Walton. Suddenly, they heard a ripping sound that only Hemingway recognized, and he shouted, Oh God, jump! to Walton and their driver, Pelkey pushing Walton into the roadside ditch and shielding his body seconds before a German fighter fired a stream of bullets into their jeep. The plane came back for a second pass, again firing down the middle of the road and missing the men in the ditch by a few feet, a very thin margin for a strafing. This is where it gets Hemingway. <clears throat> Hemingway calmly Was that unho- not a great description, by the way? <laughs> yeah, 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 pretty much. Well done. So Hemingway calmly unhooked a canteen from his belt and offered Walton a premixed martini. <laughs> the taste was metallic, but Walden had never enjoyed a drink more. The three picked themselves up, brushed the dirt off their clothes, and walked on past the smoldering wreck of their ride. There you go. Bill Brasky can't top that. Yeah. You build a myth <laughs> That's from truth. And so The footnote says there are various uh, versions of this incident, <laughs> and he cites several of them. So Several of them. Yeah. Various versions. On yeah. the, so. <clears throat> I would consider Ernest Hemingway... Probably the world's best personal correspondent. He made sure that he was always writing, talking to people around the world because he knew them already. He had, he had already established a rapport, a relationship with people that would have possibly known something about what's going on. He did that. And he did it on purpose. That man found himself in places that things had not happened yet. But they did. Hmm. And, and who it, was there? It wasn't just that he, he traveled all over the world. It's that he was at important places at important times. There you are. And he was involved in what was going on. Correct. Yeah. And he had, a, and, and he had a, a, a feeling about it. And he cared about what was going on. He wasn't a tourist. No, he def- was not, not a, a tourist. tourist. And he, he left his impact on those events. Yeah. Certainly. Um, it, it's, it's almost like... Um, not to diminish Hemingway at all. The movie Forrest Gump, yeah. uh, Forrest Gump just ends up being <laughs> at these historical things. Yeah, right, right, and, and right, he, right, right, right. Like, wow, I didn't know he was. He did that. He was there. And and Hemingway, 
found himself in these different events influencing what was happening, not just writing about it, but actually being a part of it. It, it was impossible for him to be the, the removed observer. Yeah. He, he had to jump in. He needed to be part of it. So I think in preparation for this, this recording, we've all read some Hemingway. We've studied on some Hemingway. Um, Marcos, do you want to tell us a little bit of uh, To Have and Have Not? Yeah, actually, it's, it's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. That, that, that's, that adds to what I was going to say here. We're talking about place, right, and, and the importance of place. And this is a significant place, nine years that he spent here. Um, uh, but he then he then went to Cuba and he lived there for 20 years. And Mark and I had the opportunity to go to his house, the Finca Vigia, Finca Cuba, Vigia. and that was that was pretty cool as well. Not as cool as this, honestly. I'm not. I would agree. Yeah. I think this is this is much cooler because over there you're still, it's still weird in Cuba now. You know, even and and especially for me as a Cuban American, it's kind of odd. Did you feel there. shuffled around and placed in position? And uh, no, not really. You just feel Good. like. Things aren't really, you know, you, you're kind of being watched or, or people, you know, you're, you're kind of being monitored a little bit while you're there. And, I can and, I can understand that. I'm happy to facilitate and, and the rest of our staff and our ownership to be able to do this. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, we didn't have the benefit of, yeah. of having the Cuban equivalent of, of Chris there. So we were, you know, just part of the tour. So we got to stand around the windows and peer inside. Yeah. And, so when you, you go, know. it's re- what, what's really cool about that place is that when he left, he... He he came to the U.S. They thought he was coming back. So then he he the his his the, the gun went off. In, in in my opinion, he knew he wasn't going back. Yeah. I know he wasn't going back. But I, I know he the, knew he wasn't going. Of course they did. Yeah, and he had a lot of friends and people who actually they really loved him. They really they it's really cared pa- for it's him. It's their papa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they left the house the way it was, and and for the most part, when you go there, you're looking at the house and you're seeing it how it was with the same furniture. The books are in the same place. The records are on the in the shelves. But I I see um, I I ripped this off the Vigia rum. I thought this was interesting. I, I won't. It's in Spanish, but basically they're saying it's it's uh, it's in the tradition and uh, uh, and kind of as a a tribute to Ernest Hemingway. This rum. And and it says uh, it's it's significance lies in in the places that he loved. Check this out. It says Paris and San Francisco de Paula, which See? is the, the city in, in Havana. And the tip of the arrow of the Ojibwa tribe tribe. I was like, o- Ojibwa tribe was Michigan. Yeah. This is up, yeah. So they won't say the United States. They won't say Key West. <laughs> they're going to say it's Michigan. They're going to talk about the indigenous people that that he wrote about on a, uh, apparently on occasion. But I, I picked up this quote from him, and he says, and he he says this, and this goes back to to have and have not primitives as often as not, because apparently he, he did have uh, uh, a love for these people. I think he said that he wishes that he would have had some indigenous blood in him. Mm. Um, he says, primitives, as often as not, do not vanish, but change into the urban poor, and thus can no longer serve as a locus for our powerful longings precisely oh, because this is to have not. they have entered our own normative conditions of urban life. So he, he had a soft spot for, for the people. He really did. And I, I believe it was genuine. So uh, I think my, one of my questions surveying the Hemingway house that I've been to a number of times and, and knowing so much about how well he lived, how well off he was, is how, how did a man of his caliber in his place in society remain so connected 
to the common man. C- can I can I please just do. say something about yeah. what you just no, said? No, please do. And I'm going to I'm going to say something that really struck a chord to me in terms of what our media coordinator Dave Gonzalez had told me at one point. He said, very rarely is it asked to me if you could tell me something most interesting about what Hemingway did and who he was on this island. And I find this to be very true, and he was correct about this. If you needed help in any way, and he was... He wasn't famous famous. He was more known on Key West for boxing and sparring and fishing until the end. And then people started to realize, oh my goodness, that's Ernest Hemingway. Because we're so far separated. We're really far away, even Mm -hmm. now. People have no idea how we live here and what we do. But David said, and he was right, that man would have helped you in any way financially, physically, if you needed help changing the wheel on your car, if you wanted to pull some mangoes for a tree to make sure that they don't drop on the ground before they get destroyed, because anybody in South Florida knows that a mango hits the ground and it's done. You got to cut that edge off and, Mm -hmm. you know, he would do that without a question. So there's a story about Hemingway that I find absolutely fascinating because uh, Key West... Uh, famously suffered through the the Memorial Day hurricane. Oh boy! Or was it Labor Day hurricane? Labor Day, September third, nineteen thirty-five. And Whew. there's a story about him that while uh, the national news was trying to look for for people to blame, uh, you know, why are there people dying? That there was some work camps in the they're called the Matacumbe work camps. Matacumbe, yeah. And so many men had drowned. And their their bodies just washing up on shore, flying into trees, hanging on with children's in their arms. Hemingway. We know how many people died there. Just sorry. Hundreds. What we know is Hemingway. Scary stuff. Literally jumped in to rescue to to recover the bodies. Wow. That he he didn't he he was here. He He, didn't find it appropriate that they would just go away. Yes. Hmm? This was this huge strapping guy that was familiar with the water was familiar with the dock lines. I'd like to think that he would jump out away from the tide rolling or whatever was rolling to make sure he could roll back and grab grab somebody and grab onto a dock and pull it up. I mean, and, and that's I think that's part of what really builds the mythology is all of it. It's you would expect that somebody who was as talented or as uh, Renown or, or celebrity sitting whatever. at a desk or standing it up at a at, at a at a large desk end later in life writing about it. You, you you'd think that kind of if I was that situation if I was that talented if I if I was that artistic, I might say well the way I can help is maybe I can write about this or maybe I can ask for money, but Hemingway risked himself yeah. and, and throughout his life. The I personally would find it more difficult to reaccount that situation and get it down properly on. Mm. A piece of paper. That note about his writing, I think that that's something that is a little lost when he becomes a logo, when yeah. he becomes this like the man's man, and, and there's movies made about him where he looks like he's he was just the ultimate alpha male. Is he was a damned good writer? Yeah, he was. 
he, he was he felt like his life was continually improving his writing how to be a better writer and we know him if he was just some big personality in key west he might be just a story people tell here yeah but because he was able to write so amazingly about it he his writing is going to live on the shortest more most true sentence mm-hmm. right one true make sentence. it real right if you write about yourself and what happened it doesn't need to be embellished it doesn't need to go on and on write it he had said that um when, when asked, uh, I don't know if this was in a letter or if it was a conversation with a friend, somebody had commented that he, he had, they asked him if he was a communist because uh, J. Edgar Hoover was after him like he was so many other uh, artists and, and actors and, and writers and thinkers. Back then, you know, it was the, the big, uh, per, you know, looking to find who the Reds are in, 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 <laughs> in the entertainment industry and, and in America. So uh, Hemingway was one of his targets, and, and Hemingway, w- they asked him, you know, are you, are you a communist? He goes, he goes, and actually, it wasn't even that question. He just said this. He said, I don't like any kind of fascism. He said, not, not, don't really care for it. But it was a very simple answer. It wasn't complex. It was like, I certainly wouldn't want to live under a communist regime uh, because I know how that turns out. So that wouldn't be good. But, and this was in relation to Cuba. What under Cuba was under Batista, Fulgencio Batista, and he said, "But anything at this point would be better than this guy." <laughs> yes. And what he was referring to wasn't that. I mean, he was fine in Cuba. He was he was living large, right? But he saw what was going on with some people in Cuba and how and and he and the corruption was 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 really pissing him off. He was he was like he saw the corruption, how it worked there, and he he just said, "This has to stop." You know this this whole thing has sent, but he really he, he I think he I think we're really he knew that he wasn't going to be political, but he knew that this corruption was killing the people. Mm. You know, he didn't expect, didn't know that that Fidel was going to come out as a communist and all that stuff. He he probably presumed it, but you know didn't think that was going to happen. But I think this goes back to to have and have not, and and you can see his disdain for. The, what was going on? The wealthy, especially here in 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 Key, in Key West, which were the tourists, really. A lot of the tourists or the or the uh, the the snowbirds who would come down. But and this was the launching point. Yeah. It wasn't about the people that lived on Key West. It was about the people people that were traveling that were to traveling Key West, here, yeah. leaving from Stock Island, <clears throat> and going to Cuba. Well, this was in relation to the Yacht Basin, the, the chapter on the Yacht Basin oh, and To Have and Have Not, which, okay. is, which is my favorite chapter because he mm-hmm. rips everybody in that Yacht Basin. He creates <laughs> the stories about them and just tells I mean, you. I'm going to get close to the microphone. Shouldn't he have? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you can just tell he's, he's, he, just, he just can't stand the, the, you know, what's, what's going on because he sees the disparity. And he knows not the disparity because he, he's wealthy, right? But he's not a dick right <laughs> i guess that's what it was he, wait wait uh, wait yes he was <laughs> yeah you know his he whole was. life but everybody knew it but yeah. that was the beauty of it man. but 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 like you no, going no. back to cuba the folks loved him you know i think the people here loved him and it was there was that think of it would not be there unless it was for hemingway yeah and it wouldn't be preserved unless it was for him yeah because there's a respect involved and i find that such a beautiful thing and that, that was a time when there the 50s there was great animosity for 
what they would call ugly Americans. Yeah. yeah and man. there's that famous photo, famous photo of it's some businessman in his underwear wearing a sombrero with a cigar in his mouth in Cuba. Yeah. And this was the, the image of Americans being tourists in Cuba. They, they just come here and they do their thing. They, they, they have sex with our women and they, they smoke our cigars and they leave. And Hemingway was American. Yet he was in the land in a way that, that people saw him differently. He, yeah. he wasn't one of those ugly Americans. Right. We need to remember it was 20 years in a place that he loved and respected because he loved the people. He loved the culture. Yeah. yeah. yeah oh. And they knew that because it was real. And I think Hemingway sought that. If he wanted to write about something, he kind of had to be there. Yeah. He had to experience all the details about the, the place and the people. If I were to say right now, hey, guys, let's go to Martinique. Oh, what I'm would there, you say? Brother. I'm there. I'm there. Uh, if, let's go. If right? You're to Martinique. Check, yeah, I'll go. To Martinique. Let's <laughs> just get on the boat. Right? Right. The next question is, how on earth would we get there? Yeah. <laughs> and, that's the, and that's the thing. Uh, and I'll, that's really what it is. I'd like to plug the Uncle Gus Foundation. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Help us get to Martinique. The Uncle Gus Foundation. I, I want to talk about that idea of Hemingway strongly held beliefs, but it seemed like he really didn't like being... Uh, encouraged to espouse those beliefs publicly. No, 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 he didn't. He didn't at all. There's a great story in that book I read about how um, it was after that that Labor Day hurricane that he was asked to write for a communist paper about the atrocities and all the the, the happenings and everything that happened because and, it was for their. And purpose. he wrote yeah. an article about yacht maintenance for the yeah. like he wrote an article yeah. that was all Tied about up, maintaining a large boat put it in a good and, spot Keep and they published clean. it and they Tied published it, it. And, and like they they thought they had gotten their guy who was going to write this searing you know work against evil capitalism and he turns into writes about owning a large boat <laughs> and i i just appreciate his subversive quality so Uncle much <laughs> uh, and also it it reminded me, Marcus, you're talking about how um, um, he, he wasn't a communist. He spoke against fascism. It reminded me of that great philosopher of, of um, he says, not that I condone fascism, fascism or anyism for that matter. Isms, in my opinion, are not good. A person should not believe in an ism. He should believe in himself. I quote John Lennon. I don't believe in the Beatles. I just believe in me. Good point there. After all, he was the walrus. I could be the walrus, and I'd still have to bum rides off of people. <laughs> Who was that great modern-day philosopher? Uh, Ferris Bueller. <laughs> you said, because this is something we, we talked about as a group, you said Hemingway blew it. He, mm. he, he had everything, and he threw it away, and, I, and, and, and we have to go there. We have to go there. <sighs> Ernest Hemingway was a product of making sure that he experienced and he did things to be able to create and to give access to people of the world. 1937, <clears throat> Ernest Hemingway leaves this home that we're sitting in right now looking at the pool. Beautiful. Yeah, our, our resident photographer, Don, has taken some beautiful photos. We'll post Ernest on Ernest Hemingway site. leaves this property to cover the Spanish Civil War neglecting to tell his wife Pauline he was actually 
planning on and did take somebody with him, which Ooh. was Martha Gellhorn, wife number three. Did, did he meet her at? Did he meet her at? Captain Tony's. He met her at Captain Tony's, the original Sloppy Joe's. She basically wooed him. She was a bombshell. Come on. And an amazing woman. She was Let's, hot. Let us, not, <laughs> let us not deflect that. She was a this great was writer herself. Certainly one of the world's most renowned and rightfully so war correspondent journalists. Correspondent, yeah. Covering the Spanish Civil War with her, well, soon to be enough husband Ernest Hemingway Pauline finds out about this tears down his what at the time was a fully regulation boxing ring at the put at the foot of the pool who were sitting which we're sitting along right now um, she tore down the boxing ring and built a $20,000 pool <laughs> which we also need to realistically reference that it was 1938 and the entire property was purchased for eight grand. He came home just short of a year later, about 10 and a half, 11 months later, and Pauline had built a pool. Um, He basically went livid. How much of my money for my writing? In reality, it was her money, if not Uncle Gus's, 20 grand. Wow. The equivalency, <laughs> the equivalency to date is closer to three hundred and fifty to four hundred thousand dollars. But the point is, it's during the height of the Great Depression. Um, they had the money, and that's fine. Um, in my opinion, in mind, it was rightfully done. Um, he was not the greatest guy, and we know that. And the truth is that she knew it, as well. Yeah. Can I tell you something? Um, I personally consider Ernest Hemingway as the epitome of Mr. Take or to Leave It. Why? Because he personified it to the entire world. Right, who he was, who he was, and that's the whole Gohorn thing. I'm going. I'm going to Europe. It's time to go. I'm going to go get a job. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go do that, and I'm going to go do that, and I'm going to go do that. But he did, and 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 he became successful? That man was known on this island for boxing and sparring and fishing until the end. Mm -hmm. He died at 19 days shy of his 62nd birthday. At least a few of us have grandparents that are older than that. 62, not even. What did he do? That man traveled the world in his 20s and 30s. Do you know that most people were dying trying to get two or three states away domestically? Because it was either their only option or they wanted to do something new? If you are lucky enough to find your calling. Yeah. I think he, he knew his, his principles, and he lived by them, and he was able to, to execute and to, to create so much art in his writing four rules and the stories that surround him that his principled life, they, they won't overshadow his writings, but they, they buttress his writings, that you can trust what he says because he lived it. 
Yeah. But in at the same time, in knowing that it's still a story. Yeah. Right. You live the story. I can find a comfort in that. In anything I read. But but we I mean we, I mean some of us at this table read a lot more than other others of us, you know. And speak, I'm putting myself down on that. But th- there was a truth, and and we've we we've touched, we kind of we've walked around it a little bit. But you know, Marcus and I were talking in depth about his his four rules. I mean, he had four rules. Always, always his four rules, and he never deterred from that. It's a principled life. Yeah. If I could be that guy. I'd have a lot more zeros on my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> if I um, had an Uncle Gus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uncle Gus. The Gus Foundation. <laughs> the Gus Foundation. We're setting up a Patreon for the Gus Foundation. Patreon. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Silliness. Okay, Does so anybody have any closing thoughts as we, we wrap up? I, I, I want to say one thing. So, and I have to emphasize it because we're, we're, sitting, we're, we're sitting where we're sitting. And, and, and it's location, location, location. And we're we're sitting on, on and, and I, I earlier when we began this I took a picture of our feet right remember that, and and I, I wanted to see my feet standing on the stones you know, mm-hmm. standing where he would have crossed over again and again and again, I'm not making him a god and I would never do that. He wouldn't uh, want you to. Right, and he wouldn't want that. Right, I mean he he didn't like that kind of limelight. Ever. Uh, he I think he he used. The mythology to 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 move the writing to to make sure that the stories got out, um, but 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 the space the space, and and I keep going back to that is like, you know, I I had someone tell me one time, look, just find your little piece of heaven, no matter how big it is, or how small it is, and 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 work that piece of land, you know, mm-hmm. and and he pro- I think he did that more with his writing. Than he did with with the actual physical well, location. He moved and moved and moved and moved. He did, but he found inspiration in the places that he was. That's what I was. And shows yeah. that. Yeah, you're right in saying so. No, no, I, you said it much much better than I well, did. He found the inspiration so. in the place, and then he told the story as true as he could tell it. We could beat him up for a lot of things. We could say he screwed Uncle Gus up a little bit. And we should. <laughs> That's what makes it real. Mm. He would want us Don't to beat him up. Don't strafe over yeah. that stuff. Oh no, yeah, you can't. You can't Never. Yeah, yeah. Because then that makes it unreal. Yeah. Unreal history, not cool with me. Mm. So and there's a lot of it. So, but Mark, before we leave this, I, I, give us one anecdote. Give us one thing we don't know. Whether he got punched in the face by somebody, or I mean, what is an it? What? Give us an anecdote. There's not a lot that you can't research that you wouldn't know. There's a great anecdote about um, the writer. Hang on, I'm looking it up because I have the name wrong. Stevens, I believe, is his name. Um, there's an article called "I Punched Hemingway in the Face." Let me let me pull it up here. Yeah, so the time Wallace Stevens punched Hemingway. Here we go. It's loading here. So, um, uh, so this was in Key West. Stevens was in Key West visiting a business friend, as he often did in the 1930s. Evidently, he and Hemingway had not been getting along. He writes, he came again sort of pleasant like the cholera. (laughs) 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 And so (laughs) Stevens writes, and first I knew of 
I, I knew of it. My nice sister Ursula was coming into the house crying because she had been at a cocktail party at which Mr. Stevens had made her cry by telling her forcefully what a sap I was. No man, etc. So I said, this was a week ago, all right, that's the third time we've had enough of Mr. Stevens. So headed out into the rainy past twilight and met Mr. Stevens, who was just issuing from the front door, having just said, I learned later, by God, I wish Hemingway were here now. I'd knock him out with a single punch. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> so they, they had the fight. Hemingway won. Naturalist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, th- this author writes, um, Stevens was 56 years old, worked a day job as an insurance executive. He had the build you'd expect, solid but forgiving. Hemingway was 20 years younger, lean, and sun-weathered from recent adventures in bullfighting and African safaris and Caribbean sailing. When Stevens finally did land his Sunday punch bam very late in the game, he broke his hand on Hemingway's jaw. (laughs) Nonetheless, they were of about the same height, but Hemingway tries to flip the disadvantage to his corner when he writes a letter about the account. I was very pleased last night to see how large Mr. Stevens was, and am sure that if I had had a good look at him before it all started, would not have felt up to hitting him. But can assure you, there is no one like Mr. Stevens to go down in a spectacular fashion, especially into a large puddle of water in the street in front of your old Waddle Street home. (laughs) Gentlemen, I'm kicking you out. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we're done. Well, I wanted to thank uh, again. Thank you, Chris, for spending this time with us, man. It's been freaking awesome. Chris was great. Yeah. Thank you for thank sitting you. with us. This if I got to do this one time a week, man, <laughs> wait, am I grinning? I'm, I'm probably blushing. We can arrange that. <laughs> <laughs> we also want to thank the people at the Hemingway House. Thanks to all of them for letting us do this. It's Jackie Sands, Mike Morawski, all of your family. Dave Gonzalez, yeah, wonderful people, and I can't express. Oh man, I work for the best people in the world. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. uh, so yeah, that's we're so thankful on. for yeah. you guys well, allowing you, us to be here. You guys, the listeners, have been presented with uh, some myth and and questionable facts, and we leave it, it to you guys be. to decide. And thank you for joining us uh, here on the Elector Podcast. Be well. Cheers.